This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a special welcome to those of you that are listening for the first time. Today, we're going to wrap up a quick two-part segment where I wanted to spend some time just talking about heuristics and their importance to user experience professionals. And I was inspired to talk about this when I saw an up-and-coming UXer. I don't know who it was that challenged the person to do it, but they asked the person to go to a particular website and to perform a heuristic analysis. And the work that the person did was absolutely impeccable. I was so pleased. I was so excited for that individual. And one of the things I was the most excited about was the fact that he saw the exercise he did as beneficial. He saw it as something that would be desirable to do. Heuristics like information architecture and like content strategy have been a major part of user experience in its in its evolution, but it has been they it's they've all been grossly overlooked. And and which is really bad for the discipline where tools have taken center stage, where um, uh, design thinking has taken center stage, where uh, uh, dot voting and all these other types of things, microwavable things, frankly, have taken center stage in UX and the meat and the potatoes of the discipline, so to speak, if you get my drift, are are they're left on the outside and and that is to the detriment of the discipline we're talking about the need for heuristics today because we're trying to inspire we're hoping to point out the importance we're hoping to sell people on the value and we're hoping to to convince people to accept the challenge if you don't know much about heuristics if you've never studied heuristics If it has not been the first thing out of your toolbox, which is what my recommendation is, that folks take the time, take a step back, go back to the future, as I like to say, take a look at heuristics, look at where it has been missing and where it could have benefited you in your work today. So again, two weeks, this is a very condensed look at the topic. And I shared a few tidbits last week and this week, I want to start out by telling a story and then I want to just quickly go through a few of the heuristic models and the the elements presented within those models just to help people to understand how beneficial these things can be. And and, and normally I might share the story at the end, but I want to present the story in the beginning and, and I'm even presenting this in response to 
uh, there was a post that I shared on social media about the importance of heuristics and why we need to to use them and 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 how beneficial using heuristics can be to the user experience professional's work. It's an absolute necessity if you're going to thrive. It's an absolute necessity that that we use it that it takes center stage for us. And someone was uh, taken aback by the statement I made. And same thing as always, the person had very little experience in UX, the person, and that's fine. If you don't have much experience, that's fine. The problem with people who don't have that much experience is that some people insist on putting themselves out there as if they're some type of a guru when they know they don't have the experience. Then they like to stand toe to toe with people who do. They have no points of reference. They have no information they have, they've done no research <laughs> on it. They don't know anything. They just love, some people just love to argue. And and me, I don't like to argue at all. I will not argue at all. And once I realize somebody is arguing, I'm done. I'm done with the conversation. Present what truth you know, because there's truth. Then there's the truth a person knows. And then there's the truth that a person is willing to share based on what they know. If a person comes to a conversation and they don't have access to anything that's truth and your truth doesn't matter, that's called subjectivism. We cannot navigate UX based on anybody's subjectivism. So present your truth. I would love to hear the truth that you know, (laughs) the part that you're willing to share. You might share something that I have not considered. You might share something I have not heard, but you're not going to come in here knowing that you don't know and then begin speaking about something as if you do. That, that is, that's called disavowal. That's not disagreement. And that's an act of sheer and utter arrogance. We don't have place for that in user experience. It can't come from me. It can't come from you. It can't come from anybody else. But based on what you do know, what you do have, what you have gathered, I should say, by your experience, share that. And when we can get a group of people to come together, and share facts based on the experience that everybody has will all be better for it. But I thought I would share that to let some folks know where I stand. This person, again, they didn't like what I was saying. And and I've got to share this funny part. It wasn't so much that they disagreed. What the person hid from their assault, if you will, is that the person was actually part of a team that was producing a, they had a solution, a remote usability testing solution that they were trying to sell. And the contents of his replies were all geared around, he didn't say anything about the tool he was pushing, but all of his replies were biased based on the tool. And, And the person actually said, you know, uh, I, I said, and based on something, a mild recap in the midst of the story, I mentioned last week that you can find anywhere from, and I'm, I'm actually phrasing this differently than I said it, but this is, it's still the same content. You can find through heuristics, you can find up to 70 to 90% of what's wrong with a design based on the number of people that are reviewing it, that are performing a heuristic analysis, and this part Nielsen leaves out 
based on the personal heuristic repository levels of the people doing the analysis, the analyses. If you have six people, because he just flat out just said that if you have, and let me get the exact numbers here. Nielsen said that if you had 10 people performing a heuristic analysis, you're going to find approximately 88% of what's wrong with a given design. But he just said 10 people that can do that. He said that five people could find 75% of what's wrong with a design. Just flat numbers. I understand what he's getting at. I understand the, the premise that he's presenting. I bring in the part about personal heuristic repository because if those five or 10 people do not have a large heurist, personal heuristic repository, those numbers are actually going to decrease. So it, it is a, 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 a synonymous phrase to heuristic analysis is expert review. If the people doing the review are not experts, they're not going to find very much of anything because they don't have any points of reference to base anything on. But back to the story. So the person was saying that, well, you uh, you could find that they say you could find 90%, but uh, you could actually, and I mentioned the gap. I said, you fill the gap, whether it's 70 or 90, you can find the remainder through research. That's part of the, the when you, tandem heuristics and research together, uh, that's an un, a really an unbeatable combo. And keep in mind that research is not just uh, remote usability testing. It's UX research. It's first-click testing. It's tree testing. It's, it's, it's interviewing. It's contextual analysis. It's, it's the whole UX research toolbox. It's not just one thing. And a lot of people today are getting into UX research and they think that it's just one, two, or three things. It, it is not. It's When we say UX research, we're talking about the whole kit and caboodle. We're talking about the entire toolbox that a UX researcher can tap into. So please no one understand that as well. But he said that you could actually find a lot of those things through research. And he continued to go back and forth back and forth. And when I mentioned that, that research is used to fill that gap between what you could find with heuristics, which should be informing the designs, which you can use to tweak things as you're going forward, which you can use to determine what to conduct research about. He didn't know any of these things. And it's funny to have somebody challenge what you're saying when they don't really even know <laughs> anything about the topic that they're trying to trying to refute things about. This is interesting, but you can always tell when somebody's doing that. At any rate, the one of the major flaws with what that person was saying was that he talked about how much you can find with research, but I have news for everybody under the sound of my voice. I don't know whether people have considered this or not, but when Nielsen said that you can find 70 to 90%, roughly 90%, of what's wrong with a design through heuristics, one of the things that we all need to know and understand is that heuristics is a very broad structured, broadly structured uh, mode of, of UX operation. And what I mean by that is when you're conducting a, uh, a heuristic analysis, 
you're looking at things from an extremely broad and holistic perspective. When you conduct research and you design research, you are only only going to find things that are reflective of the tasks that you have someone perform, the questions that you ask somebody during an interview, the the different things that come to light when you're when you're uh, conducting a contextual analysis, um, when you have first click testing or card sorting, you're only going to find out things that are directly related to that specific research activity. So you you are not going to find, as this person was alluding, you're not going to find that 70 to 90% because research actually, depending upon the type of research you're doing, the scope, the observational scope of the research that is being conducted can be very narrow to somewhat broad, but it is never as broad as a heuristic analysis. So it, it, it's interesting, and, and you know, I don't know what people think that research is a is a fix all for everything, and absolutely not. And anyone who actually wants to conduct research without having paved the way through heuristics is going to be that that's an automatic problem that someone is going to have because heuristics inform the work, whether it's design or research. So uh, just trying to help illustrate how important this is to the work that we do. And, and it, it's amazing how people, they love to argue. I said this on social media last week too. It's interesting how people who take the time to learn how to do UX the right way are are very grounded in facts and data. People who who learn and embrace these newfangled microwavable aspects, as I like to call it, the microwavables aspects of user experience. Uh, these people they like to argue. The things they talk about are, are not are rarely found in facts at all. They love to argue. They love to bicker. They love to dispute, and, and they hate facts and they actually are more they gravitate more toward design anarchy than they do toward real ux which which hurts all of us so again when you're dealing in heuristics common conventions proven principles best practices you know all the, these critical aspects of what's going on uh, that 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 feed into what heuristics are uh, um, the, when, when, when you're looking at things from that perspective, that is a fact-based type of operation. And so every UX professional must ask themselves, how are you proceeding? What leads your work? Is it facts or is it supposition? Is it facts or is it assumptions? Is it, are you, are you spitballing? Are you faking it till you make it? Or are you proceeding in a way that is trustworthy and reliable when it comes to doing the work. So anyway, that said, I did say I was going to tell a story. <laughs> well, that was not the story that I was talking about. So I guess we are going to wrap up with that story today. Let's dive in because we're about 15 minutes in. Let's dive in. And I want to just share with you at a high level, a few heuristic models that are available. I'm, I'm going to, of course, talk about the most famous one, the ones that most people 
who do know about heuristics tend to gravitate to. Interestingly, a lot of people think this is the only heuristics model that's out there. Uh, it's not. So if you're listening today and you thought so, you're about to broaden your perspectives about the models that are out there. I want to talk about three or four. And again, this is going to be very high level. And you'll be able to, if you want to deep dive this, because I'm trying to contain this to two weeks, um, you'll have to take these names that I'm about to mention and you can go out and you can look everything up. Um, and then I'll, I'll close with the story. How about that? So, of course, we're going to start by looking at what I tend to call the Nielsen 10. So it's um, heuristics that were developed by Jacob Nielsen. And it's interesting that it'll say that it's by Jacob Nielsen, but Rolf Malik also is responsible for this, um, if my understanding is correct. So um, I don't know. Maybe there is a version that, that uh, they did together that's not the one that's being circulated, but it's my understanding that they were both responsible for this. But at any rate, one key thing I want to point out, and and I love... I love what Jacob Nielsen did and does, period. But I want to point something out from a critical thinking perspective so that people will understand something that I'm going to mention later a little bit more is that when these heuristics were created, HCI, human-computer interaction, was a thing, but the Internet was not. So I, I think it's interesting, and, and I found myself shifting with heuristic in my career because I'm like, okay, this is great. But looking at when Nielsen created this, when he went, when he and Malik, I'm going to give him the credit today because that's what I understand it to be. When they created these heuristics, there was no internet. So when the internet came along, I found that these did not, they're, they're helpful. They're a great start. You've got to learn them. If you're going to learn about heuristics because of the history associated with it, but please know and understand that there was no internet. And so there are some things here that are not, I found not easy, especially when you're communicating these things to stakeholders or they're wondering how you went about doing certain work and you provide some of your resources. Some people have a, have a problem dealing with the Nielsen 10, but at any rate, I just want to, to mention that for someone to take into consideration. And, and also I want to say, for the record, uh, I have learned over the course of my career to approach heuristics from more than one angle. So I'm going to mention Jacob Nielsen. I'm going to mention a few other folks, and I use them all, all of them. And there's one base that I tend to gravitate toward these days, and I'll mention that toward the end. But I look at all of them. Don't don't just embrace one. They all have something to offer. So. 10 uh, Usability Heuristics by Jacob Nielsen, which he updated recently. Uh, but I'm looking at the old one in front of me. He talks about the visibility of system status, giving the users appropriate feedback about what's going on. So that's a heuristic. You want to give good messaging when someone is in an experience so they know where they are, what's going on, so they, so they can be aware. They, they just need to be aware of what's going on with the system. So give them appropriate feedback matching between system and the real world. And he talks about using real world words, concepts, and conventions familiar to the user's 
in a natural and logical order. So don't introduce terminology and different aspects to the experience that are going to cause cognitive dissonance. Don't don't present things that are going to cause people to become confused, stagnated, frustrated, things of that nature. You want to communicate in a in a sound and an easy to understand manner. User control and freedom, uh, supporting undo, redo, and exit points, uh, which is funny when you think about that. You can't undo something on the internet. You can go back, uh, but this is a, one of the signs that okay, this is this is really a human computer interaction thing that he's doing here, and I don't think. I don't think some people were paying attention to that. So, <laughs> and you just you you're, you you can apply user control and freedom, but you're limited based on the way that it is presented here. But again, support undo, redo, exit points to help users leave an unwanted state caused by mistakes. So, if they're in a place where they did make a mistake, they should be able to to recover from that. Uh, easily. And, and there are actually one, two, I believe three, you have three segments here that are actually very closely related, including that one. Uh, what the, one of them being the next one, error prevention. He mentions that you should prevent problems from occurring, eliminate error prone conditions, or check for them before users commit to the action. And, and one of the things I love about this one is the fact that error mitigation is a part of UX design. <laughs> we should actually design in a way to keep people from committing errors. It's not just a heuristic. It's something that we are supposed to do. And error mitigation is something that I rarely hear anybody thinking about or talking about. But we need to make sure that we are keeping people doing everything we can to keep people from committing an error in the first place. And I'm going to jump to the end actually now. And if they do have an error, the last one on the list says, help users recognize, diagnose, and recover from errors. So if there is an error, the user should be able to recover themselves easily. Make the, the, the error easy to understand. Make sure they know there is an error. Make sure they know why there's an error. And make sure they know how they can recover from that error. And so, and also remember, these are the guidelines. These are not providing you with the steps with how you do it. One's knowledge of UX is supposed to fill. There's a gap. I mean, right here with the heuristics. So again, you're supposed to help people recognize, diagnose, and recover. But how to do that? How you accomplish that? That's our job to come up with that. Uh, jumping back earlier in the list, aesthetic and minimalist design. Yes. We must make sure that we are not cluttering the interface. We have to make sure that we're not putting things on the page because somebody, the, the politics of the team is demanding that we put it there. That's where the UX person comes into play and tries to navigate and manage bias on the team and politics so that the bias and the politics don't ruin the design. So good stuff. Flexibility and efficiency of use. I'm really jumping around now. I'm not going in order here. But make the system efficient for different experience levels through shortcuts, advanced tools, and frequent action. So you want to make sure that the solution that you are designing, that it works for various user types, whether they are an expert or whether they are new. 
to that experience that you're putting together. I didn't talk about consistency and standards. He mentions following platform conventions through consistent consistent words, situations, and action. So you want to make sure that you're consistent in the design. Again, this is his guideline, but it is up to the user experience professional to execute the design in a way that consistency is key. Don't use, for example, different labels in your navigation. Don't have it say one thing on one page and say something else on another page or say something in the navigation and something else on the page itself. Uh, So consistency and standards, these things are key. Recognition, rather than recall, do not force users to use their memory. He says, make objects, actions, and options visible at the appropriate time to minimize users' memory load, or some some of us refer to cognitive load. Don't make them think too much or too hard. Make sure you're, he goes on to say, facilitate decisions, aid in the decision-making process. That is the job of the UX professional. And then the last one, and again, I went out of order, but help and documentation. Make necessary help and documentation easy to find and search and make it focused. So make things simple. And when someone does want to learn more about how to do something or what's going on, make those types of resources available. Now, those are his 10 usability heuristics. There is no way that these 10 heuristics will cover everything where you can say that you're going to do a heuristic analysis or approach things heuristically and cover everything through these 10 things. This is another reason why I learned uh, we got to go beyond this. This simply is not enough. And that's why I tap into other resources such as, and I'm going to jump through these. I'm not going to read everything that's listed here. I'm, I'm going to jump around a bit and leave some time to get to the last one because I think that's the most important one for me to present in this uh, tonight. Uh, Susan Weinshank and Dean Barker came up with 20 usability heuristics. Um, Again, supplemental. And remember, everything we do is supplemental anyway. When when you read a book on a subject, aren't you going to go and read another five or six books on the same subject? So everything that we're exposed to has a supplemental nature. And the same thing applies here with the heuristics. But they mentioned things like user control, where the interface will allow the user to perceive that they are in control and will allow appropriate control. Now, did did Nielsen really address that? Not really. So already we should be seeing that there's an example here that we need to always broaden our perspectives so that we can optimize our work. They mentioned number two here. There's a total of 20 again. I can't remember if I said that. There's 20 heuristics in this in this illustration. Human limitations. The interface will not overload or should not. They say it will not, but it should not. Overload the user's cognitive, visual, auditory, tactile, or motor limits. So we need to understand who our users are and make sure that the experience as we are designing it, as we're mapping it out, that it is accounting for any limitations that any of our users might have. And that speaks a little bit to accessibility as well. 
Linguistic clarity. This is number five on their list. The interface will communicate as efficiently as possible. And and a wonderful heuristic. Again, that's the guideline. How do you execute on that? One example that comes to mind is how that some designs, I think we've all seen it, and you can tell, if, if you've ever been in a meeting where these types of things come up, you can understand how some of these things happen. We don't want to see it. It shouldn't happen, but it does. It does happen where buzzwords find their way into the navigation. And, and when buzzwords find their way into the navigation, the team understands what the word means. The stakeholder or the client will understand what a word means, but the user does not. And if the user doesn't understand it, then they fail when it comes to linguistic clarity. They're failing when it comes to the nomenclature. They're failing, could be failing where it comes to the taxonomies. So make sure that any text, whether it's labels or whether it's actual copy on a page, make sure that linguistic clarity is optimized. And that's going to help you have a great user experience. We'll cover two more here and then we'll move on to the next example. Cultural propriety. <laughs> Did Nielsen cover that? Uh, no, not really. The, it says the interface will match the user's social customs and expectations. And this, to me, also speaks to mental models. It speaks to how we need to be aware of who our users are, their likes, their dislikes, their goals, their culture, and make sure that the way the design is executed, the way that the experience flows that it accounts for the culture of all the users and that is presented in a way where we don't have any issues where we're creating cultural problems, agitations, uh, causing people to not understand what, what's going on in an experience because of the way that we design something. So we need to be really care. Awareness of culture is a part of what we do as user experience professionals. So make sure that we, that we keep that in mind. And then the last one we want to cover here from Wine, Shank, and Barker is that that of user support. The interface will provide additional assistance as needed or requested. This could come in the form of a tool tip. It could come in the form of instructional text. It could come in the form of if somebody is filling out a form, you can provide an example of how the, the, the data needs to be input into the form field. Again, keeping error, error mitigation in mind. Uh, there's some overlap there with user support. So make sure that you are communicating in a way. There's some overlap there as well. Linguistic, linguistic clarity is applicable there as well too. Uh, and so when you have these heuristics in mind, it really helps to optimize and drive success for the work that you're doing. Isn't that great? I mean, uh, again, heuristics are fantastic. They should be the first thing out of someone's toolbox. I can't say that enough. Here's one that really falls through the cracks. I don't think that this one gets a lot of coverage at all. And it was, uh, this heuristic model was created by a man by the name of John Hutchings. And what he did was he took the, the Forrester put together something that they call the Forrester website review scorecard criteria. So, the, and there's four points there, value, navigation, presentation, and trust. Uh, with value, the homepage and its features, uh, 
permit the user to accomplish their goals. Okay, that's that's a heuristic, folks, that Forrester actually came up with. Navigation. The site's navigation is clear, unambiguous, and search results are valid. A lot of work to be done to make those things work, right? Presentation, the third factor. Forms and interactive elements behave as expected. <laughs> there a lot of times when we're on the internet or in a mobile app that you, you go to do something and you do one thing and the system responds in a completely different fashion and uh, now we're starting to get the, the user on the road to uh, annoyance thresholds uh, where you get to the point where they're gonna, only going to tolerate the, 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 the lack of delight for so long before they abandon the experience entirely. So we want to keep things like that in mind. And then the last one, again, is trust. The site's privacy and security measures are clearly defined. So when it comes to data, you want to let people know we're not going to sell your data. Um, um, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. You have to be clear and you have to make sure that the people who are using your site, your app, whatever your solution is, your SaaS software, whatever it is, you want to make sure that you're designing things and communicating with users in a way where they feel safe, where they don't feel like they're going to be violated by engaging, which means that dark patterns need to go by the wayside. When, when people have dark patterns that abound on their site and people don't trust you, the clock is ticking, and it is a matter of time before they're going to write you off. So, But, you know, folks, that's not the only thing that, that John Hutchings presents. Those are great. Those Forrester, those four Forrester heuristics, the value, navigation, presentation, and trust, those are fantastic. But there's more. He also, there's three columns on this illustration. The Forrester part is number one. Number two is the immersibility index. And then there's a third part that our uh, TUGS or the understanding group, which is a consultancy here where I live in Michigan, uh, they had heuristic IA principles and they created these principles in conjunction with Abby Covert, the author of How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Fantastic book for folks who are trying to learn more about information architecture. He has all three of these things on this illustration and he's connecting value to certain things on the immersibility index. He's connecting navigation to two parts of the immersibility index. And I'll mention what all of these are in a few moments. He connects presentation, he connects trust. He connects all of these to the immersibility index. Then he connects certain parts of the immersibility index and the certain parts of the IA principles that come from TUG and call it TUG for short and Abby Covert. And the immersibility index consists of findability, immersibility, content, capability, community, commerce, conversion, and cross-channel customer experience. Now, these aren't necessarily heuristics, although there are heuristics that are related to each one of these. There's heuristics associated with findability, heuristics associated with immersibility, content down the line. Uh, and then after he connects with those, findability connects to findable. Uh, and, and actually, I should read these off first in the, in the Tug and Abby Covert model. There's findable, findable accessible, clear, communicative, useful, credible, controllable, valuable, learnable, and delightful. Findability, of course, is going to connect to findability. Immersibility 
is connected to findable, clear, communicative, useful, valuable, and learnable. Content is connected to clear and communicative. Capability is is connected to useful, credible, and controllable. Community, it's interesting that it's here. It's not connected to anything actually on either side. Um, but so and that one, that one is sort of just there. Um, commerce and conversion are connected to credible and valuable and cross channel customer experience is connected to accessible and delightful. And, and I think this is a good segue because I won't spend any more time on John Hutchings. We're going to wrap up today by talking about Abby Colvert's model, which now she, she initially put it together with the folks from the understanding group. But today she's actually, she's modified it. She's modified her model. She refers to it as information architecture heuristics, a checklist for critique. And this is my favorite, absolute favorite heuristic model. And and earlier I said that you don't want to just rely on one and you really don't because you want to keep your perspectives broad. But if there was one, if I had to only use one, I I would I would base my whole career on using Abby Colvert's model and don't let it fool you that it's referred to as information architecture heuristics. The information, the way things are structured in her heuristic model is applicable across the board. It is fantastic. And, and I love also something that she did. Her heuristic model is derived from the Nielsen and Mollick usability heuristics that were created in 1990. Lou Rosenfeld created information architecture heuristics in 2004. Morville, uh, some people are familiar with Morville's UX honeycomb, and he created that in 2004, and that's, that, that's represented in her illustration. Part of it is illustrated or reflective of ISO 9241, which is focused on ergonomics of human system interaction. That was created in 2006. And uh, Resmini and Rosati, uh, they they wrote a great book on information architecture. And they have in their book, which was written in 2014, in their book, they talk about pervasive IA heuristics. So all of these things fed into this model. And again, findable, accessible, clear, communicative, useful, credible, controllable, valuable, learnable, delightful. What I love about what she did, well, one of the many things I love about what Abby Covert did is that when you look at her chart, and again, it's available on Etsy. You could go to Etsy. You could just search, actually. You, you could do a search on Abby Covert's uh, IA heuristics poster and you find it. It'll take you to Etsy. I gladly plunk down the money for this because it's just a wonderful resource. I used to have this on the wall in an office that I worked at and, and it would start a lot of conversations with stakeholders and it helped them to understand that we're not just winging it when we do this work, that it is based on standards. It is based on something trustworthy. We do have guidelines. We do have something that that where our work emanates from from an expertise perspective. What I love that she did here is under each one, findable, accessible, clear, and so on, there are, it said, a checklist for critique. There are at least three 
or four questions associated with each one of these categories that you can ask yourself as you're analyzing your work to see if it really meets the criteria for acceptability. So undefinable, can users easily locate what they're looking for? Now, you really won't know that for sure unless you go and conduct research. So so this actually begins to very clearly set the stage for how you can begin to use heuristics to drive your research. And you can create findability tasks within your research. Not only can you check to see if they can find it, but you can look and see how fast they find it. So you've got the findability aspect, but you also have the time to task. Because if it takes too long with one set of navigational elements, and then you have another set, so you're talking A, B, or multivariate approaches to your research, uh, and you find out that, okay, well, set B, perform better, well, that's the one you want to go with. But you start it from a heuristic perspective. How is findability affected across channels and devices? Do people find success on the site and in the mobile experience? Do they struggle in the mobile experience but are fine on the site or vice versa? You want to find these things out. When it comes to accessibility, can it be used as expected via all channels and devices? Same type of question. How resilient and consistent when used via other channels? So so you, you want to look at the accessibility aspect of it. And is it clear? Is it easy to understand? Is the target's user grade and reading level being considered? And a lot of people don't know how to check the reading level, uh, the grade level of, of the copy that they write. And you just take your copy, throw it into Microsoft Word, and you do a reading level check, and they'll do a flesh Kincaid to let you know this is at seventh grade, this is at sixth grade, this is at ninth grade. And you should know your user base to make sure that you're not writing 12th grade level content when the average or the target, the expected or the the assumed, for lack of a better word, I'm just saying that loosely, if if those people are at a 6th or 7th grade reading level and you're writing at 11th and 12th or 14th and you know that you don't have a lot of college grads because your marketing folks will have a lot of information on the, the who the users are on the side. They'll, that's where UX and marketing should be working together. When you see things like that, you know we need to tone this down. Our, our copy is, is too fancy. We need to uh, break some of these syllables down. That's really what happens there, really critical. Communicative is the status, location, and permissions of the user. Is it obvious? How is the messaging used throughout? Is messaging effective for the tasks? Uh, that are being supported here. Does the navigation and the messaging help establish a sense of place that is consistent and orienting? So how well is it communicating? Again, you find these types of questions associated with each one of these categories. And on the bottom of the, of the poster, she lists the, the heuristic elements from the aforementioned sources, Nielsen and Malik, Rosenfeld, Morville, uh, ISO, uh, uh, Resmini, and Rosati, uh, their different heuristics are listed so you know which ones are associated with the different categories 
above and the whole thing is color coded so uh for example all the peter morville stuff is orange so when you look and you see an orange bar then you know that that orange bar that's listing something that that morville has recommended from a heuristic perspective this is a phenomenal resource and again as we begin to wrap up heuristics it should be the first thing out of the ux professionals toolbox it is applicable across all aspects of ux work whether it's information architecture whether it's interface and interaction design or whether it's research everything comes back to heuristics and it can fuel it can drive or it can help to tidy up your work at the end it can be formative it can be summative heuristics are powerful and when we when we overlook them when we don't use them the right way when we negate them when we ignore them, we're doing it to our own detriment and to the detriment of our users, to our teams, and to our organizations. Make it a point. Again, I'm, I'm sort of rushing through it these two weeks, and maybe we'll revisit it in more detail another time. Uh, and also, it, it's hard to talk about heuristics when you don't have the visuals, so maybe I'll, I'll produce some videos on this and put them up on YouTube so people can see a heuristic analysis at work. But folks, I hope that I've shared enough to convince you, if, if you have not bought into heuristics in the past, if you did, but you sort of got away from it, this is powerful, folks. And so I wrap up with the story. The the person who that I alluded to earlier, where I, I posted the information about heuristics, and the person was sort of really trying to tee off on me and try to say that what I was saying wasn't, wasn't valid. He said, that you are not going to have an instance where you can apply heuristics and make impact on the work that you're doing in the organization. And when I saw that, I just laughed. It is blatantly obvious that person had no point of reference. Again, he didn't have any experience. He should have been asking instead of telling me that that wasn't the case when he has absolutely no idea. And I know a lot, not only me, but a lot of people have have made tremendous impact through the use of, of heuristics. He should have been asking, can you give me an example where? So I'm going to provide that for my listeners here today. I was working on something. I'm not going to share the name of the company. It was a huge company. And they had a, um, it was a technology company. And they had at least 100 companies. Some of you will know who it is just by me saying this. Uh, but they had at least 100 companies under that company's umbrella. And one of the divisions of the company, they heard about the work that I was doing and they wanted to connect with me to see if I could help them with a problem they were having. And the problem was that people were coming to their e-commerce site for this division. They had custom content that people could buy, or not custom, but pre-made, pre-selected content that people could buy. No problem there with e-commerce. You pick an item, you pick your quantity, you pay, you go, you're done. But there was a part of the site where people were buying custom items. And with the custom items, the customers had to provide the artwork, whether it was a photograph or a design, whatever it was, they provided it to the company and then the company would take that customize it and people could purchase this thing and then they could then put it up on their wall or whatever they wanted to do and they could make it as big as they wanted to make it totally totally up to them and for some reason 
they found out that people were coming to the site, starting this custom illustration process and abandoning. And nobody knew why. So I, they walked me through the problem. They showed me the entire problem. I looked at what was going on. And as I do, I, I noticed a few things when they walked me through it. I saw it immediately because, again, when heuristics is the first thing out of your toolbox, you will always have it. You will always observe and respond to things from a heuristic perspective. You're already going to find low-hanging fruit which really is what it is. And that person, to that person's defense, they did mention that. They said, you know, you're just going to find low-hanging fruit. And my response was, why in the world did low-hanging fruit make it to that stage where it was deployed? If you engage with heuristics, it's like low-hanging fruit insurance, if you will, so you can address those things and not deploy something with a bunch of low-hanging fruit. And and you're not going to find a lot of those things that you find things I have found through a heuristic analysis would not have been found in research. And that's what happened in this instance. I ended up to, let me get back with you. I'm going to go in and perform a heuristic analysis. I explained what a heuristic analysis is. I said, I think I, I think I see what's going to resolve the problem that you, that you explained to me already, but let me go back and do this analysis and come back and, and, and uh, provide you with a report. And that report will list out my findings It'll list out my recommendations and the benefits you can expect if you implement the recommendations. So I went back, performed the heuristic analysis. I came back, and and <laughs> the funny thing about the personal heuristic repository and the aforementioned seventy to ninety percent, um, a lot of solutions deploy at the twenty thirty percent mark. So there's people only identify twenty thirty percent of what's wrong, and there's a ton of problems that are out there. I found so many issues. I, I Not only did I do a heuristic analysis, I've almost forgot to mention this. Not only did I do a heuristic analysis, but I did that, that formal evaluation that I mentioned before where you can go in and you can perform a heuristic analysis. But in addition to performing the heuristic analysis, you can also include a task analysis. So now... When you do the heuristic analysis, when you start to to look at it from a a, a cognitive walkthrough is what it's called, from a cognitive walkthrough perspective, that's a heuristic analysis on steroids. So I did the heuristic analysis, but then I began to look at what I knew the main tasks were that the users were performing when they came to the site. I did a task analysis. I identified all the steps associated with this user experience and I began to identify the micro experiences because of the cognitive walkthrough and I came back provided a report and I let them know here's what I found here's my findings here's my recommendations this is what will happen if you if you implement this is what the page will look like if you implement I made that a part of my report as well They absolutely loved it. They recognized it. We did not have to do any research at all. So where some people would have just dived into research and then they pat themselves on the back because they did a bunch of research, I found everything in three days. And that's with a bunch of other projects on my plate at the same time. In three days' time, I came back and let them know everything 
that I found. And yes, they, they took my recommendations. They implemented them. They handed the information. The, the developers were actually a part of the meetings. So the developers knew what was going on. The developers went, implemented everything, and that part of the business immediately the abandonment issues were eliminated as soon as they deployed it. So whereas that individual, and that's just one time I did it. That person who said that you've never done anything like this before, I'm going, wow. I'm, I'm, it's amazing how some people like to engage with and try to discredit or demean without any data. Ask the question, entreaty. I mentioned entreaty once and some people like, they just got these blank looks on their faces. They didn't know what it was. Instead of challenging somebody, if you know you don't know, just ask. And somebody is gonna be kind enough and gracious enough and polite enough to fill you in on what you don't know. Why embarrass yourself? And why do your, your own teams and companies and the discipline a disservice Somebody, I'm always willing to share. Other people, I know tons of people that are always willing to share. I have, through heuristics, have impacted millions and millions of dollars of company revenue. Just with heuristics alone, folks. Just with heuristics alone. So please know and understand, it is valuable. It is, heuristics are profitable. It is dependent on your developing a personal heuristics repository where you have to understand. Because remember, heuristics are based on common convention, best practices, don't forget that, proven principles, don't forget that, reliable standards, hadn't mentioned that one earlier tonight, but I did last week, reliable standards, and, and you need to understand what these common conventions what these best practices, what these proven principles, and what these reliable standards are. And ironically, many of them you're going to learn from having conducted research. Or just your travels on the web, looking at applications, understanding what works, understanding what doesn't work, looking at bad design. It will inform you. It will help you to understand what you should and should not do in certain settings. But once, as you continue, and we all continue to build our heuristics repository throughout the course of our career, as we continue to do that, now we're getting our heuristics repository is getting bigger, it's getting stronger, it's getting more solid, and we can speak with more expertise. And then when people see the things we implement and they see how it helps and substantiates the work that's being done, then the, your, your stakeholders, your clients, they develop more confidence in you. And folks, we just vault the discipline forward. But if you just sit around and shoot it down because you don't understand it or because you don't know what it is, your credibility is going to go right out the window with those little half-baked <laughs> assumptions and attitudes and theories. So heuristics are real. I hope folks have heard enough to be encouraged to start learning. Build your personal heuristic repository. Let it grow. Expose yourself to good design. Expose yourself to common convention. Expose yourself to best practices. Expose yourself to proven principles. Expose yourself to reliable standards. And let that become a major part of who you are. Your team will be happy for it. You'll be happy for it. Your, your, your company will be happy for it. Your users will be happy for it. The discipline will be happy for it. Folks, the need for heuristics is here. So let's go back to the future and embrace them.
All right, folks, that is all the time we have for today. So thanks for taking the time to tune in. Hey, share the podcast with, with other people. This is this is the kind of stuff. Truth and facts need to go viral and not all this other stuff. I'm not pushing Darren Hood. I'm pushing. It's about the information I'm sharing. It's not about me. So let's get the information out there and let's take the discipline forward. So uh, that's all the time we have for today, folks. So this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.